<laughs> Good morning, community. Uh, my name is Ilunga, and I will be reading our passage of scripture today. Uh, that is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 to 25, and is page five, uh, 757 on Pew Bibles. And uh, you can follow up on, on the screen as well. Let's read. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She, be she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her, knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of God. In last week's passage, we read about what Matthew called, quote, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. He places emphasis on one life continuing in another's life. One father having one son. Abraham fathers Isaac, Isaac fathers Jacob, and so on until Jesse fathers David, and then on through Hezekiah, father in Manasseh, and then on to Zerubbabel, this governor in Judea after the exile, on until another Jacob fathers Joseph, quote, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. The emphasis is on life and birth, but we should note that for all this emphasis on life, emphasis on fathers and mothers and birth and one son having another son, for all this emphasis on life, we should note that every single person with a name on this list died. All of them. Abraham, David, Jesus. The Bible says the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23, but wait, is that why Jesus died? The answer is both yes and no. The person named last in the genealogy is wonderfully both the same and very different than all the others. In his birth, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, and in his second advent. And as we study this passage, would you join me in prayer that God would help us see it with fresh eyes. Let's pray. Heavenly 
Heavenly Father, in all the noise that is Christmas time, may you help us to keep silence. As David said, the word he used, Advent is for sobriety as well. But but may serious reflection and sobriety lead to serious joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew is like this high-resolution photo of the family tree of Jesus Christ. And, and, and what Matthew does after showing us the family tree, he, as it were, takes his thumbs and he zooms in on the birth of Jesus and his parents, particularly Joseph. In the picture we see of Joseph, as we zoom in and see him, we see he's a pretty neat guy. Matthew calls him a just man. Other translations translate that same phrase as a righteous man. But Joseph has a real problem. He's afraid. And his fear has likely been building for several months. We'll say more later, but you understand why. He's caught in tremendous cross pressures. His romantic love and loyalty to family traditions are all intentions with other desires. There's his desire to meet the expectations of his culture and his friends. Joseph wants the men who have discipled him to not be disappointed in him. He wants to keep his duty to obey God. And it's all so jumbled. Every way forward that he could imagine, whether with Mary or without Mary, has these undesirable consequences associated with it. He's trying to thread a needle that he doesn't know if it can be threaded. And he's afraid. You've been afraid before, right? Love, family, traditions, cultural expectations, the responsibilities of life, your duty before God, they they all can get jumbled together in such a way that life gets hard. Not to mention, you throw in a health crisis, a major life decision like about where to attend college or whether to accept a promotion or whether to move from one city to another or perhaps maybe you're weighing the decision of whether to move from one church to another or maybe for some of you, you're afraid because Part of you wants to leave the church altogether. And you're not telling people, you're wondering what your parents will think, what your friends will think, what will God think? Some of you, the question is reversed. You're coming to church for the first time and you're wondering, what will my friends think? What will my family think? When they find out you go to church and you're afraid, tremendous cross pressures of tradition and our understandings of right and wrong and following passions and obeying the duty that we have before God and thinking about what others will think of us can all get jumbled up in such a way that we can get very afraid, which is to say, you probably understand a little bit of what it was like to be Joseph. And the way God meets Joseph in his fear is unusual. God catches 
Joseph up into the weirdest and most wonderful of stories, the birth of the one who is both God and man, the birth of Jesus Christ. We sing of Christmas being the most wonderful time of the year, and we all know it's not always that, right? But if it is wonderful at this time of year in any way, it's because the original story was itself wonderful. But before we can see the original story of the birth of Jesus as wonderful, we need to reckon with its weirdness. So let's talk about that. Some of you, from the start, you might object to the word weird. We had it in the title of the sermon as it went out in the email Friday afternoon. I don't know (laughs) Uh, if that was you. That's fine. I I am not intending to call the birth of Jesus weird. By calling it weird, I'm not intending to demean the sacred. I just thought it it sounded lyrical when put with the word wonderful. (laughs) So that's kind of why I chose it. Perhaps there are better words, though. The unusual birth of the God-man. The unexpected birth of the God-man. These words, unexpected, unusual, they're fine. But if you object to the word weird when describing the birth of Jesus Christ, it might be because you've become too familiar with it. I actually think those of us who are less familiar with the Christmas story might actually see the Christmas story better than those of us who are more familiar with it. If you're new to Christianity, which is what Joseph was, you might see the weirdness even better. And just put yourself in his sandals. You grow up in a strict religious home where you're taught to love God and honor him. From an early age, your parents pledge you to marry a girl from a family they respect, and their family respects your family. And then a dozen years, as those dozen years go by, you you all, you eat together on weekends. You worship together in the same synagogue. And over time, a dozen, 15 years and more, you actually come to like, perhaps even love, this young girl named Mary. Then as a young man, you enter into a formal, binding, public ceremony of betrothal, something more significant than our tradition of engagement, something more binding. And then in just one year, just one year, you're all going to come back together, and there'll be this huge, wonderful wedding ceremony, the whole community. But now all that is jumbled. The complex web of fragile family relationships that have been carefully manicured for so many years have now been ripped apart. All because of Mary's few moments of selfish indiscretion. Mary has been, as the passage says, found to be with child. Chapter 1, verse 18. You're Joseph, and you know you're not the father. And Mary has the audacity to tell you this is of the Holy Spirit. We often think too low of ancient people. As though virgin births were the sorts of events that are weird to us, but not to them. (laughs) Have you considered, have, have you considered that perhaps Joseph wants to divorce her quietly because he loves her? And perhaps because he thinks she's crazy. 
This story is so strange, so unusual, so unexpected. When we put the Gospel of Luke alongside the Gospel of Matthew and we try and tease out the timeline, we, we get more details about the timeline of who knows what when. Still, the, the, the picture is a little vague. There's some details we don't know exactly. But we do know when the angel visits Mary and tells her what is going to happen to her and then what is going to happen to her happens to her. We know that Mary then leaves for three months to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth lives in another city. It's her older cousin. In fact, she's quite old and has never had a child and miraculously is now going to have a child. The child we refer to as John the Baptist. That's right. John the Baptist and Jesus are cousins and so Mary leaves to help. All that really happened, of course. Mary does go visit Elizabeth, but it also provided something, dare I say it, of a cover story. Or at least... It bought more time. The thing about being pregnant, however, is that eventually people notice. And I suspect people were about to notice Mary. And it's this moment, this moment of decision, that I suspect caused Joseph so much fear. Note verse 20. As he considered these things. Let me just read it in context, 19 and 20. If you have a Bible, just, just leave it open there to Matthew 1, 19, verse 19 and 20. And, and her husband Joseph, being a just man, righteous man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So betrothal to end it was something could be likened to a divorce. It was more than engagement, but less quite than a marriage. So that's their context, but trying to explain it. Verse 20, as he considered these things, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Well, we're talking about strange aspects to this story. While we're talking about strange aspects to this story, I'll just say that Joseph himself is unusual. He will divorce her quietly? This this woman has ruined my life, he could have said. Everything I imagined about my future, everything about our future, she took from me, she, she took from us. Yet he'll divorce her quietly? I mean, he's so loving and honorable that he'll just flush his reputation down the toilet with hers? I mean, there, there's no paternity test that can tell this small, tight-knit, rural community that he ain't the father. Don't be quiet, Joseph. Be loud, someone in the village would probably tell him. Post it on TikTok. Control the narrative. Don't be afraid to get out in front of this. Joseph is unusual. This birth of the God-man is all very strange. Perhaps you'd permit me the word weird. But it's also, when rightly understood, wonderful. Let me say it even more pointedly. It is the very weirdness that is actually wonderful. It's not that it's just both weird and wonderful. It is that the weirdness is wonderful. And this unusual, unexpected story of the birth of the one who is both God and Man was God's plan from the very beginning. 
And God wouldn't change a bit of this story. You pick that up, don't you? If God inspired Isaiah some 700 years beforehand to tell his people that this was his plan, it's because God is very happy with this plan. Let me read again Matthew 22 and 23. This is going to be quoting Isaiah chapter 7, part of it. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And again, God committed to this plan, this, this sign from the beginning, that this is how he would bring his son into the world. Yet in our world, people, people often wish that they had a chance to do things over, right? To do things differently. Surely you've done something, perhaps many things, that if you'd had the chance, you would do that again differently. People often create a plan, but when they see how it plays out, and they see the reaction from the masses, and when they see how something they did was misunderstood, they wish they could all do it so differently. All this way of thinking about doing things differently got me thinking of a story from last year. It's going to be strange to bring it up, but I'm bringing it up anyway. It's a story of Bud Light and the marketing campaign that happened this spring and the internet transgender personality, Dylan Mulvaney. Back in the spring, the company gave Dylan a can with his face on it, and he posted online. It became a story, and, and some of the consumers liked Anheuser-Busch's commitment to LGBTQ issues. They liked that. Other consumers, apparently many of them, didn't like Anheuser-Busch going in that direction, or perhaps it was just that they didn't like corporations going in any social directions. Regardless, if you followed the story at all, you would know that sales have been down, and then that just a few weeks ago, I don't know if you noticed, the marketing officer, the chief marketing officer, resigned effective at the end of the year. So it's a big deal to some people. Now, normally I would consider this a sort of story that I don't care all that much about, but I like to be somewhat aware of what's going on. And more importantly, I think of Dylan. He's made in the image of God and spend eternity forever in heaven or in hell. And so, so people matter. People in stories matter. And, and I think about all of this scandal and gossip and backlash and online uproar in the context of marketing decisions. And, and this story, weirdly as it is, makes me think of the Christmas story. Let me explain. Their marketing team would love a chance to do that over. They would love that chance. They've scrambled for nine months and still can't seem to make it right, whatever right is to them, and I wouldn't know what that is for them. But, now this would never happen, but imagine you were on God's marketing team, and you hear about the plan for the birth of the Son of God. And you start putting two and two together, and you think about the scandal that this is going to be. In all the ways, for 2,000 years, this story is going to be mocked. 
And might you have at least suggested there could have been a better, less controversial way to bring the Son of God into the world? I mean, it wasn't just a scandal for Mary and Joseph. It was a scandal for Jesus too. Some 30 years later, we were preaching the Gospel of John in the spring, chapter 8, in May. And there in chapter 8, the religious leaders take this scandal of the virgin birth and they throw it back in his faith. They say, John chapter 8, 31, we were not born of sexual immorality. (laughs) Which, of course, is their dig at the scandal, perceived scandal, of the virgin birth. You and I may have written this differently. But that's because we don't understand that the scandal was part of the point. Perhaps you've heard the phrase before that, the, that something is a feature, not a bug, right? Oh, it was a feature of the system, not a bug. Like that we're doing this intentionally. Maybe it's a phrase you say. Well, from God's perspective, the strangeness of the virgin birth is a feature, not a bug. In other words, that this story would feel strange to us when we're seeing it rightly is part of the point. God begins the story the very way he's going to continue the story. God chose the scandal of the virgin birth because he's telling a very scandalous story. A story of the scandal of forgiveness. Indeed, the word for the cross that's used sometimes in the Greek is scandalon. You hear scandal. The Apostle Paul writes in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, Greek scandalon. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What seems a scandal or foolish or weird is for the believer also wonderful. It's weird that God would come to dwell with his people and that story then, and that that story would begin in a lowly manger, not a kingly palace. And it's wonderful that God would come to dwell with his people and that that story would begin in a lowly manger and not a kingly palace. It's weird that God would come from a family with such a crooked, broken tree full of outsiders and scandal. And it's wonderful that God would come from a family with a crooked tree full of scandals and faithlessness and outsiders. It's weird to me that the very name of the Savior would be Emmanuel. Meaning God with us. It's weird that our name, us, would be attached to God's Son's own name. And it's wonderful that the to us is in God's name. We talk about the virgin birth and the birth of the God-man a lot and and we say it's important. Why is it important? Jesus is born in this way so that he can be like us, meaning human, 
But he is also born in this way so that Jesus can be more than us, meaning God. To be Savior is to be the one who is like sinners but not a sinner. The one who can save sinners. That's why his birth is in this way. I'll use an illustration. Ben Bechtel and I were talking this week. Pastor of Midtown Church. Some of you know Ben. (laughs) He's a pastor here for eight years. Um, He's going to come back to our annual meeting, 12 o'clock, and share a bit about how Midtown is doing, which is wonderful, by the way. Um, But he's preaching the same passage this morning, and we were talking about it, and and he had this illustration. He said he was going to use... It was this illustration of a chase scene. He, he just felt like, okay, in a movie, they're all chasing someone, and they're, they're in this, they end up in this alley, and, and the, the person is frantic, and they're looking, she's looking over her shoulder and doesn't know what's chasing her, or she, maybe she knows, and she's frantic, and she's pulling the doorways, trying to unlock things, and they're all locked in this dead end of the alley. Ben told me that that's a picture of humanity apart from God. And if you think back to the genealogy, the Abrahams, the Jacobs, the Davids, the Rehoboams, and the Zerubbabels, they all die. They all run into an alley, and, and no matter how frantically they try all these doors, they cannot escape. The wages of sin is death, but then along comes Jesus. who's born in no ordinary way. He's born both like us and not at all like us. He's God and he's man. And Only in this way, as Matthew puts it, can he be what his name means. Can he do what his name says he will do? He will save his people from his sins. Only by being God and man, only in a birth that was the same and different, can he save his people from their sins. His strange birth is the only way to save those in the alley of death. That's why the virgin birth matters. That's why its weirdness is wonderful. And this message changes Joseph. This passage begins with him afraid. He doesn't know what to do. He's caught in all kinds of cross pressures. If he does this, then that will happen. If he does that, then that will happen. He wants to follow God, but he's not likely sure even the best way to do it. And a quiet divorce was the best he could come up with. And yet, look how the passage ends. Verse 23, excuse me, 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. The wonder of this story, the wonder of knowing God, that God was with him, seems to take away his fear. I don't care what people think. I'm going to do what God tells me to do. <laughs> like, how, how did he get to the, that place? Because he knew God was with him. And this idea of God being with him and us still changes people. Matthew begins his gospel with the theme, God with us. How does he end his gospel? Let me read to you the last lines from the gospel of Matthew. After his death, after his resurrection, Jesus comes to his disciples and says, quote, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son 
and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not a coincidence. Joseph and Mary had a lot of danger ahead of them. Obedience for them was going to be wonderful and it would be costly. Knowing that God was with them changed them. And here today, in light of Matthew's gospel, God is sending us out to, he's sending us out into obedience that I trust will be wonderful, but I suspect also costly. But knowing that God is with you till the end of the age, I think makes all the difference. I don't know what shape your obedience needs to take today and in the coming days. Perhaps you need to take that book that that Pastor Ron was talking about and he gave us and gave gave us and maybe there's someone you know that you need to give it to. You knew that the second Ron said this is what it's for. You're like, okay, it's this person. And you're afraid, simple as it is. You need to hear God's with you. So give it away anyway, anyway. For others, you might need to just keep that little booklet for yourself. Because you actually don't need to give it to someone else because you don't really know the story very well. I remember years ago, I was at this Christian event, decades ago, and they were giving out some Christian material and it was for us to give to other people and I thought, I'm just gonna put that in my pocket because I don't, at the time, didn't really know what the good news story of Jesus was about. Maybe that's the way you need to hear that God is with you. As we close, I want to use a line from a, a song that's meaningful to me. It's, there's this musical group called Shane and Shane. They've been around for a number of years, and we sing their songs from time to time at church. They have an old song um, called Holy from 2004, and I, the line goes, forbid familiarity would keep us from his majesty. Forbid that familiarity would keep us from his majesty. So that's my prayer for you this week and this morning. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes to lead us in song? Heavenly Father, we pray that no matter how many times we've heard the Christmas story, that we would not cease to be astounded and in awe and in wonder that this is the way you chose and that you're a God who loves to tell the story of the scandal of forgiveness. We thank you so much for the good news story of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the promise of his second advent. In his name we pray.